0: Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whenever you're listening. This is Davisville on KDRTLP 95.7 FM in Davis, California. You can find us online anytime at kdrt.org slash Davisville. I'm Bill Buchanan. I'm your host. Thank you for tuning in. Well, in the March 5th election, voters in the Davis Joint Unified School District will decide whether or not to approve Measure N. This is a tax on property to help pay for teaching and educational programs in the district's schools. The tax starts at $768 per year per parcel of land would not expire unless the district school board or voters decide to end it and would increase every year with the rate of inflation. Measure N replaces Measure H, a similar tax that district voters approved in 2016 and that expires in 2025. And Measure H was itself the latest in a series of school taxes that Davis voters have approved during the past 40 years. As for who pays the tax. Generally, if you get a property tax bill from the county and you live in the district, then you'd pay this tax. There are some exceptions, but that's the gist of it. Measure N needs two-thirds approval from the voters to pass. Supporters say that the $11.7 million that the tax raises is essential to Davis schools. You can find a list of what it supports on the sample ballot, and supporters point out that it essentially continues a tax people already pay. If the tax fails, the district says, Cuts would probably begin the next year. Opponents object to the indefinite nature of the tax, point out that the Davis schools tax stream has grown several times over the years, and claim that it favors programs favored only by the elite. Voters can get a good sense of the arguments pro and con from the sample ballot, including a list of the programs and, and such that the tax pays for. But all this raises a larger question. Why do Davis schools need local tax measures? In other words, where does money to pay for California's public education come from? Why do we have the system that we do? It's a very complicated subject, but our guest today can help us understand it. John Finsterwald is editor-at-large with EdSource. This is a nonprofit based in Oakland that has been around since 1977, and it's a respected source of information about education in California. John previously worked as a reporter, opinion writer, and editor for three newspapers and is up to speed on California education funding. His wife is a retired elementary school teacher, by the way. So that's a long introduction, uh, but hopefully that will set the stage. And John, thank you for taking time to talk with us today.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Bill, talking about one of my favorite subjects and a community. It's one of my favorite places. My daughter went to UC Davis and have spent lots of time in your town.
0: So she, uh, what, did, what did she get her degree in?
1: Neurobiology. And uh, it was good. She's now a doctor. So it was
0: good background and great education. Okay. Well, and it certainly gives you a sense of the town and the community that we're talking about here. Could you start with a general overview of how California pays for education in really now it's pre-kindergarten or transitional kindergarten through high school? And as I understand it, California is unusual in that most of the money for local schools comes from the state government, correct? That's right. It comes from the state. And Give us the background. How did we get to the system we have? Why does most of it come from the state? Well,
1: I guess it goes way back to a court decision called several called the Serrano Cases, which said that getting all of your money from local property taxes was unfair. If you look at the various communities, there are wealthy, tax wealthy and tax poor communities. And they said that was an unconstitutional way. Those disparities were unconstitutional, but denied the constitutional right of children to get an equal opportunity to an education. So that led to state funding primarily of education. And it took a while up with Prop 13 and it's taken a while for California to recover. And it's about in the middle range now of per student funding among the states. But then again, it's a very high cost state as well. So you have to take that into consideration.
0: Yeah, Prop 13 was uh, the measure 45 years ago now that upended property tax law in the state, particularly for homeowners. And basically it was to the degree that before Serrano and even after Serrano, property tax help paid for local schools. Well, Prop 13 limited that. And so the state backfilled a lot of that and it continued that trend. That's right. So now one of the current categories that's really important in this is what's called local control funding formula. Could you explain what that is and how that works?
1: Yeah, that's right. So before we do that, one step back, and how much money do schools get from the state? And there's a formula called Proposition 98. It was passed about 30 years ago, and it's it determines the percentage of the state general fund that goes to community colleges and K-12, and it's about 40% every year. And uh, most of that goes to TK now, TK-12. Out of that, most of the money for schools out of Prop 98 is funded through something called the Local Control Funding Formula. And it provides most of the money that schools get. And we adopted it about 2012, in 2012. And it sets a base funding for every student. And then those districts with large proportions are of low-income students, foster children, and English learners, they get additional money. And so that can be substantial for those districts that for which those students comprise most of the students in their district. That's not the case in Davis. It's less than a quarter of the students are in those categories I just mentioned.
0: And the premise behind that is that the categories you mentioned that's one way to measure districts relative financial standing and that it's in the public interest the the broad public interest in california for districts with those kind of challenges to get more money with the idea of overcoming them and providing a good education that's exactly right governor brown was the champion of that and said students have
1: additional needs if you're low income if you're an english learner and we're going to fund recognize that those students need additional money and we'll build a state formula around that so california's formula is very clear because every district is funded on that basis that i just described so you can look up and look at the percentage of students that are english learners and low-income kids and predict how much that district will get relative to other districts so it gets a little bit more complicated when you try and track the money and see if it's being spent well. But in terms of funding, it's a very simple and clear system.
0: Now, of course, if we bring this home to Davis, Davis gets less money from the state. Yeah, and, no question. And depending on your point of view, that's a good thing or a bad thing or, or just is. But but the bottom line is that i got these numbers from Ed Data, which is a state education data bank. And these are for 2021-22, so they're a little outdated. But they report that the local control funding formula per student in Davis was $10,232. That was about $2,400 below the state average and about $1,300 below the regional average. Does Davis get other money from the state besides those Those funds? Yes, yes, it does. The
1: actual per student funding in, in that year, we're looking at the same year, 2,1-22, was $16,619. So... The LCFF funding provided a, a little, little less than two thirds of the total, and in addition to that, it got special education, federal special education and Title I. That's federal funding, not that much, a thousand plus dollars, and then additional other state revenue was about two thousand. But then you have three thousand in local revenue. And that's way above the average for a unified district. It's like 300 plus percent above what other districts, unified districts have in local money. So the difference between local control funding formula of 10,000, add 3,000 plus dollars for local funding. And you'll imagine how much less funding, how poor, so-called poor Davis would be if it didn't have that local funding. That's, I think, jumped out at me among the data that I look, I'm looking at.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, just the complexity of numbers. If someone's yeah. listening casually, it's sort of a sea of numbers there. And they're going to think, how does all this add up? But But the takeaway point is that basically the state provides less to Davis and the local taxes basically put that back in. And the 3,000 you're mentioning, that isn't all just, wouldn't just all be from measure N or its predecessor. We also had a tax in Davis measure G a few years ago, which passed to help pay teachers more. So how many, you alluded to this uh, a minute ago, how many districts have local taxes like this? And I gather from your answer, Davis is unusual in its size. Davis
1: is unusual in its its size and its length. I, it's 40 years about that. Uh, it's had a parcel tax. That would be one of the first parcel taxes uh, in the state. And it's larger than most in part because it's had uh, inflation adjusted at least uh, over a number of years. I don't know when it started that, but then the last parcel tax it was about six hundred and twenty dollars. And that was eight years ago. Yeah, in Davis. I You know, they run only about one in eight districts in the state have a parcel tax, and that's because in part you have to pass it by two thirds majority, which is not easy to get. In fact, many districts that look at a parcel tax, they do a, a poll of their voters and they say it will never pass it. So the other thing is it's mainly smaller districts and wealthier districts in the state. So students in the state, who benefit from a parcel tax? It's less than ten percent of the students, but for those districts such as Davis that have them, it's a, a very important it a very important. You'll get Ross uh School District, very wealthy district. It's over a thousand dollars, and then you'll get other districts that are under a hundred dollars. So it ranges a lot.
0: Do you have a sense? Is there good data that correlates how much funding? for a district sort of correlates to a good outcome. And by that, I don't mean, you know, if you spend $10,000, do you get, you know, certain grades on the SAT? I realize it's way more complicated than that, but there's a lot of things that go into a good education. And I'm wondering how much money like this plays a role. There's no question that
1: money matters. And for a while, California as a state was among the lowest funded per student uh, funding in the nation back... Following the Great Recession in 2008-9, it's come up since then, and the passage of a local control funding formula, and we had an income tax back around 2016, I believe, that remains with us, one of the highest earners. It is no question it matters, but there are other factors, too. It's instruction counts and turnover of teachers, whether you have veteran teachers or not, and also you can make correlations with parental education. That matters as well. But I think that studies have been of a local control funding formula. We can, again, talk a little bit more about that if you want. But there's no question it's been effective in distributing the money to the communities, particularly those that get the most money if you're in a district with 90 percent of the kids qualify for that additional money called supplemental and concentration funding. It's made a difference. Rucker Johnson, a professor from UC Berkeley, did a good study, and it was backed by Julian LaFortune from Public Policy Institute of California. His research found the same. Those students in particular benefited from that extra money. You can see it in attendance. You can see it in test scores and graduation rates. It's more difficult when you get into 60% of those students who qualify for the extra money, because the money, frankly, is hard to track, hard to compare among districts. Governor Brown didn't like meddling from Sacramento, so he made it really hard for you to compare, for you to look at Davis and then look at Sacramento and make comparisons as to how they use that extra funding. And it's also not like a voucher. It's not like individual students get this extra money and they have to spend it on them. It goes to the district, through the district. And there may be, there are high schools and schools within a district that doesn't get a lot of money that is all poor kids. It does, the district doesn't draw all that money. So they really don't benefit. And then there are also districts like Los Angeles Unified. It has 20% or so non-low-income kids and they benefit from it too. So it gets more difficult once you get away. But there's no question that for those who got the most money, it's made a difference in their
0: education. I'm going to do a quick station ID. We are talking about school finance, which is a complicated subject, but certainly relevant. I'm Bill Buchanan and this is Davisville on KDRT 95.7 FM. And our guest is John Fensterwald, who is editor at large for EdSource, a nonprofit that writes about education in California. So I want to mention a couple of arguments and get your sense on it, that people have brought up in Davis against the parcel tax going by what's on the ballot measure. One is that a lot of Davis students live outside the district, about 12%, I think. Almost two thirds of them go to Davis schools because they have a parent who works in Davis. And categorically, that's a reason to be able to go to a school in a district if there's room. And a lot of the rest had gone to Davis schools. And then for whatever reason, the family moves out of town, but, you know, they keep going here for continuity. So, you know, these are students really like any other, except that they don't live in the district. However, one argument is, well, uh, you know, if the district is is losing students, you know, if enrollment's declining, like it is throughout the state by and large with demographics, then maybe the district ought to bite the bullet and reduce the size of the school district, which is to say buildings, number of teachers, number of employees overall, and save money that way. And then maybe you wouldn't need as much on a tax. The argument against that is the state, the, the district will say, well, you know, we're getting this $10,000 per student. And if we were to close or trim back enrollment in different places, then you wouldn't necessarily, uh, in fact, the district says you wouldn't uh, save nearly as much money as you would lose from the loss of revenue. What I'm wondering is, in your experience, have you come across districts who, that have encountered a similar problem? And have actually saved money by, uh, you know, saved money more than they lose by shutting schools.
1: Yeah, closing a school, uh, and I think we're going to be seeing more of that in California. uh, It's projected to lose about 20% uh, over the next 10 years. So that's a substantial decline.
0: 20% of, 20 of student enrollment?
1: Yes, 20% of student enrollment decline over the next decade. And for Los Angeles Unified, the largest district, 30%. That's really mind boggling to think how they will deal with that with the hundreds of schools that they have. The issue about, I mean, look, if schools are really under enrolled, you will save some money in teacher salaries and other expenses. It's a very difficult and painful process. and because you're going to say we're going to have a thousand fewer students out of 8000 plus in Davis. Therefore, we can save one eighth the money. But those students are scattered all over the district. And it's not like, you know, it's a it's third grade couple of students from a third grade here and a fifth grade here. It doesn't make it easier to close a school, per se. And I guess I'm as an outsider, I look at it and say, okay, well, there's certainly maybe resentment that those thousand kids live in houses in Woodland or other places. They're not spending that seven hundred and sixty-eight dollars. They're not paying for that parcel tax. But that's if you do the math, it's still under a million dollars out of a budget of one hundred and twenty million. So you have to sort of keep that in perspective too. But Closing a school is difficult because schools are neighborhood resources. You can save some money, as I said, in teacher salaries. But, you know, you, you want to do it right. And a school is it, it's very much tied to the sense of the neighborhood and a community that you build. I've seen one study that said students scores and and absences, the scores decline in the absences increase in in the year following or consolidation. In part, it could be that parents had a harder time getting their kids to school. They couldn't walk to school. I don't know about that, but I think that sense of loss of community, that sense of familiarity matters. That's why districts don't like to close schools unless they have to. And if they do, it takes a lot of planning and a lot of foresight.
0: Yeah, I, I when you touched on one of the other arguments against the idea that, well, the parcel tax isn't paid by, in this case, a thousand of the families uh, or families representing a thousand students because those folks happen to live outside the district. So you've got, I guess you'd say, unequal sharing of this particular tax burden. Those thousand students will get the full state funding for those students. It's
1: just we're talking about that $768 difference. And you know, keep in mind that a parcel tax is the other thing. Which about a parcel tax is not an equitable way of raising money because every property owner, from a office building to a small house relative to a uh, mansion, are paying the same. And it's a community effort. So, in the same way that parents of students from Woodland aren't paying the parcel tax, there are people who don't have kids in school. Who live, they're paying the parcel tax too. You know, education is a community responsibility and a community burden. And, and at the same time, let me just add that a parcel tax is, I've never been a great defender in parcel tax because it's not a great way, way to raise money. It's not really an equitable way. But on the other hand, there are very few ways outside of state funding for communities to raise money for their schools other than a parcel tax. Prop 13 limited that capacity or ability to do that. But at the same time, when you pass a parcel tax, you're you're passing it for very specific purposes and you have an oversight board or committee that looks at it. So usually a community that passes a parcel tax has a sense of what the community's priorities are, whether it's counselors or extracurricular activities or aids for math and science. I mean, you get what you want in a parcel tax. Uh, Many of the complaints about school spending is that I don't know where the money goes. Well, with a parcel tax, it's listed on the ballot from very specific purposes. And there's an oversight board to make sure that that in fact is how the money is spent.
0: We have a, a few minutes left. I do want to mention one number that I still find a little confusing. This is from the State Department of Education. And so this is a number that gets cited sometimes when you know the state is wanting to say we spent a lot of money or, or a lot of money is spent on, on education. This is from the California Department of Education said so the total overall funding, that's federal, state, and local. So they put all that together, and I think they must divide by the number of students for TK 212 education programs is $128.6 billion. Again, California's a big state with a per pupil spending rate of uh 22. Let's say twenty-three thousand dollars per student in 2022-23. Now we've been talking about you know ten thousand dollars in local funding and a few thousand dollars more from this and parcel tax. If you know if you took a typical classroom and you had twenty-five students and they each you know you were twenty-three thousand dollars per student, you'd end up with what was that five hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars for a classroom of twenty-five students. Now obviously it's not that simple. It's not that clean. But it is interesting to look at that and think, well, nowhere near half a million dollars is probably going into that particular classroom each year. I mean, the teacher certainly isn't making anything close to a half million dollars a year. And yes, you have overhead and 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 so on. But what do you make of that number? I mean, it it must be describing a lot of things that just aren't visible. I don't know. That's
1: right yeah you are exactly and and again that includes all f- all federal funding for special education for example uh is a is a huge expense that uh, goes to the individual students by law they're entitled to it. it and about on average one out of about 12% of students are special education students but we're also talking about money that the state spends that's not in proposition 98 that we talked about and that's a preschool program and it's CalPERS and Calsters, the pension funds, the state's contribution to it. We're talking about facilities, uh, both local funding and also state funding for that. And outside of a classroom, if you look at a school, we're talking about aides and counselors and social workers. And certainly since post-pandemic, most districts recognize mental health needs have increased. And that doesn't factor into a, you know, per classroom figure that you, you said, there's after school curricular activities, preschool, school lunches. There are lots of things that we take for granted that if you say, well, you know, 500 whatever figure you came up with per classroom, factor all these other things in and you begin to understand both the complexity of running a school and why that figure itself doesn't explain a lot about what goes on in in a school.
0: You know, not that it's my job to suggest an article for EdSource, but that that could be a fascinating article that would sort of take that number and break it down. It would probably be a lot of work. But the fact that state cites that number, it's like, well, love to understand it then. Because when you encounter something like with the parcel tax in Davis, and Davis has almost always passed this, maybe always, I, I didn't go look each election. But, you know, it comes down to a financial thing. Someone looks at it and says, all right, well, what else am I spending money on? And is this important? Relative to the other things I've got and of course people are paying inflation and high housing prices and all the rest of it so really understanding those numbers is is useful and really that's one of the premise why I want to talk about this today you've covered education for a long long time is there something about state funding of education that you think it's really important for people to know in California that maybe they don't know
1: well what I mentioned before that the reason why California is different it is more Equitable in the way it finances or funds its schools. And also, uh, it's clearer and more transparent what each district will get. And the formula passed under the promise by Governor Brown, uh, local control funding formula, which is to say, we're going to take away some of the interference from Sacramento. Believe me, they're stole. It's a telephone book, uh, thick education code. But nonetheless, in a lot of key decisions, a lot of these spending categories that used to be part of California, we're going to say, no, we're going to make it so that the base funding districts, you decide how you're going to spend it. But the transparency, I think, is a challenge, which I we talked about a little bit. It's really difficult to track how the extra money, the supplemental and concentration funding, is spent in California. And If you've ever looked at a local control and accountability plan, it can run hundreds of pages long. And that's because over time we said we're not really trust or don't know because we can't see how that money is spent. So therefore, we're going to create a document in which it's you can, if you're willing to go through it, which I trust very few people are from page one to Z squared, uh, you, you unless you do that, Even then, perhaps you may not have an understanding. I guess the holy grail, which maybe we'll get to someday, is that you can have a, it's all electronic and you can look up what you want to see in that LCAP. But at the same time, you'll have a very clear document that says "These, these are Davis's priorities. And then the global sense, this is what we think we need to do next year for your students. We've identified or worked with you because the local control funding formula requires outreach to parents. And that the, and this document clearly represents what we've discovered. We school board have felt that these are your priorities and we're spending it correctly. But you know, it, finance is really complex. But I guess, Bill, the best way to determine that is to, and, and whether or not it's spent wisely is to go through a budget session and we may be doing that. This this spring, in fact, if there is a cutback in Prop ninety eight, might happen in May. You'll hear the arguments. Okay, well, we need to cut. What should we cut? And those arguments will be heated and long. And it's at that time it's as if every penny is precious. When you actually then have to go and cut it, so it will be. It's really difficult to entangle once you have spending what you what you want to then not spend it on.
0: Yeah. Um, So, yeah, and uh, you're referring there to the state budget uh, deficit that looks like is coming up, and then that would certainly have an implication for funding. Just real quickly, uh, EdSource, of course, is one place people can check and read up on. Um, Any other sites that are good that you think for a layperson who just wants to follow schools?
1: Sure. I would recommend to parents and to actually anyone to go to something called Ed100. It breaks down school policy and school finance into really clear chapters. Uh, Jeff Camp, who an, an active parent and, and, and knows about this, he, he wrote it and with help from others. And I recommend it. I use it myself. Just do a uh, Google for Ed 100. It's, it's ed100.org, I believe. And also, California is wealthy with, with nonprofits who, develop, who look into education, one of which is PACE policy analysis for California education. It's based in Stanford and the university. They produce really good research.
0: Okay. Um, I I think we're probably going to have to end it there because we've run out our half hour. But uh, John, I really appreciate this conversation. I've enjoyed it, Bill. So we've been talking with John Festerwald. He is editor-at-large for EdSource, which is a nonprofit that writes about California education and analyzes it. I'm Bill Buchanan. This is Davisville, KDRT, 95.7 FM in Davis, California.